Good, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are going to be starting a new series in Acts, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1. We're just going to be looking at three verses this morning, and that's found on page 909 if you're using the Pew Bible. And whenever I begin a new series for the first sermon, what I like to do is, is lay out the big picture of the book, give you the main themes, uh, set the, the direction of where we're going to go in this study. And this is, the, Acts is a long book, it's 28 chapters. So we could be preaching this for a long time. I preached in 1 Corinthians, there are only 16 chapters there, and I spent over a year on that. So we, I haven't actually laid out my preaching schedule, but it could be an entire year or more in this book. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at these first three verses today. And we're going to see the overall direction that it's taking us. And, and next week, Lord willing, we're, we're going to start to dig into these beginning uh, scenes and acts that really lay the foundation for the entire book. So those of you not familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the story of the, the early church. It's the story of how Christianity expanded, how the gospel went out to fulfill to fill all the world. And this is a story of how the, the church went from just a few frightened and discouraged disciples, you know, gathered together in, in the upper room. Their, their hopes had been dashed. They saw their leader was, was brutally and, and, and shamefully tortured and executed. And then this group has gone. This group has gone to be, become the most numerous and the most powerful institution the world has ever known. Today, today, over 2.2 billion people, nearly a third of the world's population, identify as Christian. Now, of course, not all of them are, are born again. But again, a third of the world's population have been influenced by Jesus, by the message of the gospel. And this is the story of Acts. This is the power of God's word moving forth in this fallen world. And this is what we're going to be looking through as we study through the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dwelt, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, do thank you for this word. Thank you for the book of Acts. And Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me. Lord, that I will speak your, your words. I cannot say anything of value without your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit will open each one of our hearts, our ears to hear from you, to have an encounter with the risen Christ. And I pray, Father, that we will be changed. We will be changed as we leave here, that each one of us will know you more. Each one of us will be conformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we notice as we look at the book of Acts, from the very first verse of this book, is that this book is a sequel. It's a sequel. The, the author of the book of Acts, who is, is Luke, the author of the gospel, bearing his name, he starts Acts by referring to his first book, which is the gospel of Luke. And we know this because both books are dedicated to the same person. If you remember when, when Nathan was reading the opening of the book of Acts, they were, it was addressed to Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Well, we don't definitively know who Theophilus was, or if it, even if he's a reference to a, an individual person or not. The name Theophilus simply means friend of God. So this could be a reference to Christian. All Christians are friends of God. That might be meant what's meant by Theophilus. Luke in his gospel addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. 
indicating that he was a high rank in, in the Roman government, perhaps even of the equestrian rank, which was, was the second most powerful rank in the government, kind of like equivalent to a duke in, in the British system. Well, regardless of the, of the identity of Theophilus, Luke starts this book of Acts telling us that this is a continuation, a continuation of an earlier account. He says in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke's book, Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Jesus began to do and teach, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And implied here in Acts is that Luke is continuing the story of Jesus. In his first book, it was all about what Jesus began to teach. This book, the book of Acts, is all about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And this is an important point. And this is a point that's easily missed. And the point is, is that Jesus is driving the action in the book of Acts. Jesus is driving the action in the church today. Jesus continues to act, even though he's not physically here, not physically present as he was during his earthly ministry, as he was during the time of the four Gospels. Nevertheless, Jesus is acting. And again, this point is easily missed. See, we tend to think that that Jesus is now in heaven. He's he's up there. He's preparing a place for us, and he is doing that. But we kind of think that the work here, the work now, the ministry now of, of spreading the gospel, that now falls to us. That now falls to the church. And even the full title of this book, take a look at it in your Bibles. It's called The Acts of the Apostles. And implied in this title is that this is the story of the apostles. That the apostles are the, the main actors in the story. That Jesus has, has now handed off the work that he began to do. The, the work of the church, the, the, the work that's described in the gospel. And now this work is our job. Now we are the ones who must implement Jesus' plan. Now it is all up to us. Now in one sense, this is the story of the apostles. They do play a large role in the narrative that we're studying. But my friends, the apostles are not the main drivers of the action in this book. The apostles are not the reason for the miraculous growth of the church. The apostles are not the reason for the the spread of the gospel. Jesus alone is the reason. And just reading through this book, it becomes obvious that the apostles are, are not the drivers of the action, and they're not the reason for the growth of the church. And, be, and because it's clear that the apostles are not the main drivers of the action, many people call this book, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, they call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And they say this because the Holy Spirit here plays a prominent role in this book. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is probably most visible in this book than any other book in Scripture. He plays a more prominent role than any other book in, in Scripture. Now those of you who know your theology, this prominence is not the normal role of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit normally do? The Holy Spirit normally works behind the scenes. He, 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 the Holy Spirit is a, a divine person. The Holy Spirit is fully God. He's just as much God as, as God the Father, just as much God as God the Son. But he doesn't draw attention to himself. What's his role? He draws attention to Christ. He focuses on Christ. He focuses on the Father. That's his role. And while there is complete unity in the Trinity, there is complete agreement among the three divine persons, I think it's much more appropriate for us to see not the Holy Spirit as driving the action in the next, driving the growth of the church, but rather to see Christ. See Jesus as the one who is driving the action in the book of Acts. Jesus is the one who is bringing the growth to the church. Jesus is the one who is responsible for the spread of the gospel. 
And the books of Acts could, could, could really be called, instead of the Acts of the Apostle, the continuing Acts of Jesus, or all that Jesus continues to do. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to flesh out what this action looks like. We're going we're gonna to look like what it looks like in Acts and what it continues to look like even to our present day, in the present day church. And we're going to use the three verses. These are going to be the outline of our sermon. And they're going to outline how we see Jesus continues to work in the church from its beginning until the day that Jesus returns for his bride. And this is our outline. We see that Jesus gives commands first through the Holy Spirit. And he gives these commands to his apostles. And he gives these commands about the kingdom of God. So that is our our outline. Through the Holy Spirit to his apostles and about the kingdom of God. So let's start off through the Holy Spirit. Jesus works through the Holy Spirit. Jesus directs his church through the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, the Holy Spirit is the most prominent in the book of Acts. And he's prominent because what he's doing, he's implementing the work that is given to him by Jesus. The work in the church, the work of growing the church, the, the work of spreading the gospel. But there's a big danger here in the book of Acts. You see, many cults, many heretical sects, they love the book of Acts. And they love the book of Acts because they see the way the Holy Spirit is prominent and, and how he works in the apostles and how he worked in, in, the, in the church, in the early church. And what they do is they make that normative. They make the way that the Holy Spirit acts in, in the book of Acts, they make that normative for the entire church age. And they misunderstand the Spirit's purpose and they misunderstand the Holy Spirit's work. They see his, his, his anointing in an unbiblical way, a way that's really more akin to seeking personal spiritual power, more worldly power than serving God. So we need to, to remember a couple of things about the Holy Spirit. So first of all, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 14, Jesus promises his disciples that he will send them the Holy Spirit. They will, he will send them a helper. See, Jesus was about to go to the cross. He was about to die. They were worried. They were, they were scared. So Jesus tells them in, in, in Acts chapter 14, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and you will be in him. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. Because he was going to cross. He was going to die. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, we understand that the Holy Spirit is sent by Christ. We understand the Holy Spirit indwells each believer. Think about that. The Holy Spirit, the the third person of the Trinity is actually inside every single believer. This is meant what Jesus says just a a few verses later. He says, John baptized with water, but I baptized with the Holy Spirit. means Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit to his people. And the Holy Spirit has several functions. The first function is the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers of sin. See, this conviction then leads to repentance, then leads to faith, which will lead to justification, which will lead to the forgiveness of sins, which will lead to being made right with God. 
See, the Holy Spirit applies Christ's work of salvation to the sinner. Until the Holy Spirit does it, the, 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 the sinner wants nothing to do with God. We have no desire for God. We, we kid ourselves, think that we are not sinners. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, we see it. And then we see the beauty of Christ. We are attracted to him. And then we come. Yes, we choose God. But we choose him only because the Holy Spirit has given us new life. New life to see the sin. And the Holy Spirit then applies Christ's work to the sinner. And this is why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. See, this blasphemy, this rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit, what it does is it, it, it severs the, the sinner from the grace of Christ. You see, the, the ability to repent, the ability to, to believe in Christ, this is a gift. This is a gift from the Holy Spirit. As Evan was telling us about the people in Spain, as, as, as these people who have not heard the, the gospel, they're serious. It's not that they don't have information. The Holy Spirit needs to change them, needs to convict them of their sin, needs to, to show them that they need Christ and, and see the beauty of Christ so they can, to, they can accept him. But until that happens, if you continue to mock him, if he's repeatedly rejected and despised and, and mocked and blasphemed, eventually this gift is going to be withdrawn. Eventually, this offer of grace that's on the table will be removed. So this is the function of the Holy Spirit that he has with unbelievers. It is to quicken them, to give them new life. But he also plays a huge role in the lives of believers. See, in the lives of believers, the Holy Spirit, he is the helper. He is the comforter. The Holy Spirit enables us to endure life in this fallen world. You see, as believers, and I'm sure many of you recognize this, as you are a, a new creation in Christ, this world no longer feels like our home. We feel like strangers and aliens here. We, we, we don't understand the world. It just doesn't make sense. And that's because we were meant for heaven. We were created for heaven. We were meant for the new heavens and the new earth. We were meant for, for peace with God. And this world is in rebellion against God. And our hearts groan when we are in this world, groan in this world of sin. And, and our bodies are as sin, as, as our bodies are, are decaying, as, as our souls are, are, are wrapped with sin, and we continue to commit that sin that we don't want to do. And we, we desperately want release. We desperately want to be made whole. And it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comforts us in this state. It's the Holy Spirit. He enables us to endure life in this fallen world. He enables us to persevere in, in our battle against our sin, in our battle against the world, a battle against the flesh, a battle against the devil. And what the Holy Spirit does is he orients us toward heaven. He orients us toward God, toward his kingdom. He takes our mind off the, the things of this world, and we focus on the kingdom of God. And often he does this by convicting us of sin, even as believers, by convicting us of sin. By showing us where we have fallen short, where we have blind spots, where we have failed to live in accordance with this new life that has been given to us. And we fall back to old habits. Old habits are our old, unregenerate nature. But this is not how we are. We are better than this. We are better. And, and the Holy Spirit reminds us of this truth. And this truth is painful. But this truth is sweet because it is of grace. And as we encounter that grace, we know him more. We know his forgiveness more. This is one of the works of the Holy Spirit. But another way the Holy Spirit does this is through Scripture. See, the Holy Spirit illuminates for us Scripture. He enables us to understand God's word, to connect us with God through his word. See, if any, any of you like me, 
who became a believer as an adult. You'll, you'll know what this means. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. See, before I was a believer, Scripture made absolutely no sense to me. I, I would try. I would read this book. I would get a couple of lines in. And I, I, if I didn't fall asleep, my mind would start wandering. It made no sense. It didn't seem to be relevant in any way whatsoever to me. And, and, and I would struggle to read it. I, I would find it confusing. I would find it boring. And I would find it really of, of no practical application to my life today. That's how I was. But when the Holy Spirit came, when the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and opened my eyes to my, my complete helplessness to save myself, my need for something, my need for someone greater than myself, when my eyes were opened to my need for Christ, and when, when, when the beauty of Christ, when the beauty of the, the awesome God, the, the awesome good news of the gospel, when my soul realized that the, the depth of Christ's love, that, that he would take the punishment for my sins and my failings on himself and suffer the punishment on the cross, when I realized that by his wounds I am healed, my friends, then everything changed. Everything changed. Then, then, then scripture came alive. I saw Christ jumping off every page as, as we had sung. Christ, I saw him in Adam. I saw him in Abraham. I saw him in Isaac. I saw him in, in Moses. I saw him in David. I saw him on every page of this book. And I couldn't read it fast enough. Every, every word spoke to my soul. Every word was alive. See, the Bible wasn't just history. It wasn't about people in the past. It was God speaking to my soul in the present. That's what it became. And this was, the book didn't change. The Holy Spirit changed me. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can remove the, the scales from our eyes so that we can see the divine and, 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 and supernatural nature of this book, the magnificence of this book that we hold in our hands, that we, we take for granted. This book, this book is the words of the creator of the universe, and it is spoken to us. Do we, do we comprehend what this is? Yesterday, during one of our, last night, we had a, a, worship, a night of worship. David and some of his friends were leading here. And one of the songs that he had, and it really struck me, it was talking about how God spoke into existence the hundreds of billions of galaxies. Let's think of the magnitude. The hundreds of billions of galaxies that he spoke into existence. And he speaks to us. Through his Holy Spirit, he indwells in us. That, that is mind-boggling. That is just mind-boggling. But that's not even all. That's not even all. There's still more work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. See, the Holy Spirit gifts each one of us for service. Service in the kingdom of God. He gives us gifts for the advancement of the gospel. Gifts for the advancement of the cause of Christ. And again, this work is beyond our natural ability. This is something that we could not do on our own. It is supernatural. And this is not just gift. He doesn't just gift pastors. He doesn't just gift missionaries. He doesn't give gifts just super Christians. This gifting is to every single believer. So if you are a believer in Christ, you have this gifting for his service. And this, this gifting is different. It looks different in people, but it has the same purpose. It is for the service of the kingdom. It is to, it is to build other people up. It is to build up the church. It is to help edify one another. And ultimately, these gifts enable us to fulfill our chief end, our chief purpose, really the chief reason why each one of us was created, and that is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. I mean, I think, I think about myself. Before I became a believer, I was like everyone else. You know, you know what the number one fear of people is in life? It's public speaking. You know what the number two fear is? Death. 
So people would rather die than get up and speak in front of people. I heard it said that if, if you had to go to a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than given the eulogy. That's what people had. And I was the same way. I would not want to get up in front of people. When God called me, he called me to be a believer. He gave me that gift. Same thing about counseling or, go, or, or going visit people in the hospital. I hated hospital. I didn't want to go in the hospital. I was terrified of sick people. I was terrified that I would get sick. I was terrified about counseling people, anything that might have been psychological in nature. I would run the other way. But God gave me the supernatural gifting by the Holy Spirit to do that, to enable it by the task that he has given me. So I can go into the hospital when someone is dying and hold their hand and be praying with them when they're dying or someone is sick or someone is going through an emotional crisis. God gave me that supernatural gift. It was not natural. You can ask my wife who knew me before I became a believer. I didn't have that gifting at all. It was a supernatural gifting. And each one of us, each one of us are believers, have that same thing, that supernatural gifting for use in the kingdom of God. And one thing that's important to recognize about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit never glorifies himself. He never glorifies himself. His focus is not on himself. His focus is always on Christ. The Spirit works in the background. He draws attention not to himself, but he draws attention to Christ. So when we have a love for Christ, that affection for Christ, the beauty of Christ that we see, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in us. And this is one of the ways that we can recognize a person filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we too, if, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will not seek to draw attention to ourselves. But we will always be pointing attention to Christ. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That will be the motto of every single Christian. Christ must increase, I must decrease. I just saw this last week when, when our family was in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We went to Sight and Sound Theater and we, we got this nice tour backstage. And, and the lady giving us a tour, Hannah had, uh, knew her from last year. She gave Hannah a tour when she was there with her school last year. And Hannah mentioned to her about how impactful the prayer that she gave last year was on, on Hannah and how, how it really affected her. And the lady teared up, but her only answer was, praise God. God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory, not her. And God so often uses our feeble efforts, and he perfects these, these efforts that we put in for his glory. And there's no, great, there's no greater feeling, there's no greater calling than when the Lord uses our feeble efforts for his glory. So this is the first way that we see Christ driving the action in the book of Acts. And, and today in the church, it's through his commands given through the Holy Spirit. But the second, the second way, our, point, our second point, that Christ continues to act by the commands given through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen. And we see this in the end of verse 2. And it's, it's important for us to realize that the apostles were very unique. They were in a unique position. You and I, we are not apostles. There are no apostles today. There may be churches that use this name. You know, some churches use bishop, some churches use pastor, some churches use apostles, but they are not the same function as the apostles that were chosen directly by Jesus. And we see this, we'll see this later on in chapter 1 when we get to the account of Matthias as he was selected to replace Judas among the apostles. And the qualification for apostle was that they must have witnessed the resurrection of Christ. We see that in verse 22 of, of chapter 1. See, an apostle must have physically seen the resurrected Christ. So there are no apostles here today. And the apostles had a unique function in God's plan of redemption. The apostles functioned really similarly to the Old Testament prophets. They were used by God to communicate God's word to his people. 
The apostles were used to record the words of God for his people in the New Testament scripture. And, and, and this is not our function. We are not given the function to write scripture. We are not given direct revelation from God. God does not speak to us directly as he did to the apostles. God does not use the same methods of validation of our message as he did to the apostles. See, the Lord used miracles to validate the message of the, of the uh, apostles. He used the, the gifts of tongues of speaking in unknown languages to confirm this new revelation that he was given. And, and, and God was doing something different. He was acting in a different way. In this part, he, he was including the Gentiles. The Gentiles were now brought into the kingdom of God. But God does not do this anymore. God does not speak to us directly anymore. In many churches, they, 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 fail to, to, they fall into this error by failing to realize that God does not communicate to his people as he did during the time of the apostles. Now, just because God does not communicate with us directly as he did with the time of the apostles, this does not mean that God does no longer speak to his people no longer speaks to his church. He certainly does. And this communication is still through the Holy Spirit and is still to the apostles. But it's not in the same way that we read in the book of Acts. Today we don't have this direct communication that the apostles had in Acts because we no longer need it. We no longer need the communication that was given directly to the apostles. And why is that? Very simple. We have it right here. We have it in Scripture. We have the completed canon of Scripture. This is the way that the Lord speaks to us now. It's through his word. And in the case of the New Testament, this is the word that was given to directly to the apostles. But given to the apostles by Christ for the church, not just for them, but for throughout the church age, to us. Christ had us in mind when he was given this word to his apostles. And this Scripture is supernatural. It's not static. It's, it's not old. It's not dead. It's not dusty book. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And when it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit, my friends, it is just as relevant to us. It is just specifically equable, equable to, to us today as it was to the original apostles themselves. So, so far we've seen that Christ directs the action in the book of Acts and Christ directs the events of the modern church and the events in our individual lives through his Holy Spirit, by his, word, by his word given to the apostles, which is now preserved for us in Holy Scripture. But the next question is, what is the purpose? Why is this? What is the purpose of this direction? What is the function of these commands that are given to us through Scripture? And the answer comes in our third point, found at the end of verse 3. Christ's purpose and Christ's direction is about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That is phrased, the kingdom of God. We hear it a lot in the Gospels, and we hear it in the, in the Bible, and it seems like a vaguely religious term, and, and, and we, we may simply ignore it. We, we may think we know what it means, or we may have no idea what it means. What is the kingdom of God? Now, in one sense, all creation is the kingdom of God. See, God is the almighty sovereign of the universe. God is in complete control of every single thing that happens. As R.C. Sproul famously said, there's not one stray molecule in the universe that, God doesn't that doesn't exactly follow God's will. God is the absolute monarch of all there is. He is the king of all creation. But this is not the way scripture uses the term, the, the kingdom of God. God is the, the king of his creation. But ever since the fall, ever since the fall, the creation has been in rebellion against this rightful king. 
In God's plan of redemption, his plan of redemption revealed shortly after the fall, shortly after the beginning of our rebellion against his rule that are, that are by our first parents, was revealed in what we call the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15. This is the promise that God would put enmity, enmity between the seed of the woman, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent are all those that hate God, all those that reject his authority that are in the world. And this plan of redemption has played out throughout history and is recorded in Scripture. And the plan is ultimately fulfilled in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this plan of redemption is to bring about reconciliation between God and this rebelling creation, rebelling men and the creation, and thus usher in the kingdom of God. And that's what this kingdom of God is. It is the the restoration of the creation to God's intended purpose for it. It is the restoration of the world to be a place of peace and harmony with God. It It is the world becoming that which God had originally intended it to ultimately become, ultimately ordained it to be. The kingdom of God is, is synonymous. You may have heard of the, the Jewish concept of shalom. Shalom is, is, is basically the world being as it should be, everything being in perfect harmony and perfect peace, both internally and with God. And this harmony, this shalom, this propagating of the kingdom of God, this is Christ's purpose in the book of Acts. This is Christ's purpose with the church. This is his, his purpose of his sovereign control over all history. It is to restore the creation to God through Jesus Christ. And this is to, to really to make God known to the creation, to declare the glory of God. That is what it means to make God known. And as Christians, as his church, Christ's purpose is our purpose. We are given the privilege to fulfill God's plan of reconciliation of the creation to himself. And we do this first by proclaiming really the only message of reconciliation. By proclaiming the gospel. By declaring what God has done to reconcile rebelling sinners to himself. And what we declare is that Jesus on the cross took upon himself the guilt of the sins of his people. And these sins were were fully and finally punished. Not in the sinner, but they were punished in Jesus Christ. And then Christ's perfect righteousness, perfect, perfect satisfaction of God's law was given to the sinner. So the sinner is then free. Free from the guilt of their sin. And he is then reconciled with God and, and becomes a new creation in Christ. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. <clears throat> and then that's when the fun begins. Because then as a new creation united to Christ, we are then open to God's grace and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and makes us more and more like Christ every moment. It's it's amazing, amazing. And then sanctified sinners, then then we further usher in the kingdom of God. And how we do this, we do this by by doing everything we do for the glory of God. And whatever our individual calling, not all of us are called to be in the church, not all of us are called to be missionaries, not all of us are called to be uh, pastors, but we are all called to glorify God. And we use these specific giftings and specific callings to glorify God. We show God in the excellence of our work. We show God in the, the beauty of the things we create. We show God in the service that we offer to the least of these. 
And all of this makes the world more and more as God intended. All of this ushers in the kingdom of God. All of this brings about this shalom. And the important thing for us to understand is that although we do this work, it is first and foremost Christ's work. See, we participate with him. But he's the one who takes the initiative, not us. He's the one who sets the agenda. He's the one who sets the direction. He chose, chooses the venue. That is, he chooses where he's going to work. Is he going to be working here or somewhere else? Is he going to be working in Spain? Is he going to be working in Uganda, in Kenya, in Albany? It's up to him, not us. And this fact both humbles us and encourages us. It humbles us in the fact that we cannot take any credit for any success we see. It's all his work. See, I'm just doing what God made me to do, what God gifted me to do, what God gave me the opportunity to do. All glory goes to him. And that's the same with every single one of us in our individual callings. But this also encourages us because really there's no pressure on us. See, we don't have to figure it all out. We don't have the, the pressure of doing exactly the right thing at, at exactly the right time or God's plan will fail. All the pressure is on us. It's not up to us. It's up to him. We cannot mess his plan up. We simply need to follow his instructions. And then we have the privilege of working with him where he's working. So as we go through this study in the book of Acts over the next couple of months, we'll see instructions. We'll see universal instructions given to his church, instructions that are applicable to us. And we'll see specific instructions that are, that are given to individuals and the unique prompting of the Holy Spirit, working in concordance with God's providential ordering of unique circumstances. That's how we're going to understand God's will for us. But my friends, take joy. Take joy in knowing that God is sovereign. Take joy in knowing that Christ is working through his Holy Spirit to bring forth this kingdom and to bring forth his glory. And us as his church, And as his people, we are given the privilege, the privilege of being used and being part of this plan. I can't think of a more glorious calling than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of working to you. We thank you that you are sovereign. And Father, we pray that you focus our minds on you, focus them on the kingdom, focus on proclaiming the kingdom, whatever our calling is. Whatever it is, however humble that calling may be, Lord, that we will be focused on you and making your name known and and having you glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.